0: Well, good morning. My name is Matt Randles, and uh, boy, I'm like the 10th person to say good morning to you today, I think. So Jesus, let's start with him, he was a storyteller, and he was famous for his parables, and we've been going through parables these last, this last month or so, and we're going to look at another one today, but I want to start instead with a proverb, a modern one, a one you all know, and it goes like this, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap, right? It means that to say something is easy, but what matters is can you do it? Now, P.T. Barnum, the 19th century showman, said, talk is cheap until you hire a lawyer, which is absolutely true. He's right, but it does not change the fact that the proverb is true and we know it. Talk is cheap. The rich old dour, trenchantly opinionated Lady Catherine de Bourgh in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice once criticized Lizzie, the main character, for her skill at the piano, commenting that she would never really be good unless she practiced more. Fair enough. But then, Lady Catherine says, There are few people in England, I suppose, who have more true enjoyment of music than myself, or a better natural taste. And if I had ever learnt, I would have been a great proficient. (laughs) Oh, really? Well, talk is cheap, Lady Catherine. Put your money where your mouth is. You gotta walk the talk. You better practice what you preach what about this one? Actions actions speak louder than words. Yeah, you all know that. The book of James puts it like this. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. He even says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, that tends to freak us out because we're saved by grace, Right? We're sinners. We're not perfect. There's no way to earn God's favor. We need grace. We need forgiveness. We need mercy. Faith is our only hope. Right? Absolutely. So what are we to do? What are we to believe? If faith without deeds is dead, as James says, if we don't always back up our words with our actions, are we doomed? Because I don't know about you, but my actions do not always back up my words. Paul says it like this, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. What a wretched man I am. Can you relate to that at all? I sure can. Jesus has a lot to, to say to us about what we say and what we do and how those things line up or how they don't. And today we're going to look at one of his parables about a father and two sons, but it might not be the parable you're thinking of. In his storytelling, Jesus was a master of the plot twist, a master of the memorable image, a master of telling a tale that springs a trap at the end. Now, I love a story that gets to the climax and drops the bomb that makes you rethink everything. The bad guy isn't who you thought it was all along. Nothing is what you thought it was. I love the Twilight Zone. Some of the, the old Twilight Zone episodes were so good at doing that. And there are no shortage of Hollywood movies that, that try to pull off the big twist ending. It's not easy. And sometimes the big twist is lame. And, but when it works, it's powerful. Now, Jesus didn't just throw in a plot twist for effect just to be cool. No, his parables that have a twist ending are designed to confront us. They're designed to shake us up, and we're gonna be confronted today. We're gonna look in the mirror, not to bring shame, not to bring condemnation, but to check the state of our hearts. I once knew a pastor who called Jesus a surgeon of the heart, a surgeon of the heart. I love that. I know it's tempting to just wanna hear what we wanna hear. It's tempting to focus on the positive and downplay the tough tough, but sometimes we have to look in the mirror And sometimes we have to face the hard questions. Are we walking the talk? What do our actions say? There's no doubt that Jesus told lots of his parables lots of times, more than once. Perhaps many times, on many occasions, many places to many people. So it seems that a lot of them are pretty generally applicable. They don't seem particularly tied to any one time or place. But for some of his parables, it seems that they were very much rooted in what was going on in Jesus' life at the time. And that is especially true of the parables when he finally got to Jerusalem at the end of his ministry. When he went up to Jerusalem for one last time for the Feast of Passover to face off with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and then finally to be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. It's the climax of the story everything's been leading up to this. Now all along, he's been challenging the status quo, the conventional wisdom. The Pharisees were frustrated with him because he seemed like a rule breaker. The religious leaders, the priests, the scribes, the legal scholars, they resented that he was so popular with ordinary people and the crowds were saying things like this, wow, that Jesus guy from that Galilee, he speaks with authority not like the teachers of the law. That that kind of talk hadn't won him any fans among the religious leaders. To their way of thinking, he was some upstart outsider going around, stirring things up, making them look bad, and they didn't like it. They couldn't stand it. On the other hand, Jesus was frustrated with them because of their hypocrisy. And it all came to a head when he went up to Jerusalem that last time for Passover. We remember it when he arrived as the triumphal entry. People are shouting, Hosanna. They're waving the palm branches. They're hailing him as a prophet and a king as he rode into into town. And so right away, he goes to the temple. He turns over the tables. He drives out the animals. He drives out the money changers. Then he goes out and curses a fig tree, a symbol of Israel, because it was unfruitful and it withers immediately. Now he didn't do that because he hates figs or that he was mad at trees that day. It was a prophetic symbolic action pointed at Israel and their unfaithfulness. Then he gets into debate after debate with the Pharisees, they're the holiness group, as well as the Sadducees and they're the more aristocratic, politically motivated group. And then finally, in this brutal chapter, Matthew 23, He publicly denounces those religious leaders who had been fretting and fuming and plotting against him from the beginning of the gospel till now. He's told parables about them, and we're going to get to the parable in a minute. Don't worry. He's cursed the fig tree. He's driven out the money changers, and now he's going to let them have it. He's just going to let them have it, telling it like it is without pulling any punches. The gloves are off. Listen to what Jesus says for all to hear. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. everything they do is done for people to see. Now, if you remember from the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, he's been saying this from the start. Don't do your good deeds just to be seen. He says when you give, don't make a big deal out of it. When you pray, go pray in your closet, not on the street corner. When you fast, don't look miserable to show everyone how devout you are. Just go about your day without making a big deal about things. Of course, sometimes we flip this on its head, and some people think that if you're fasting and you tell someone that you've magically destroyed the power of the fasting. Or they think that when it comes to giving, everything must be done absolutely super secretly between you and God alone, and if you ever talk about it to anyone, then you will negate your treasure in heaven. Jesus' point is this. Don't be a spiritual show-off. And don't be a hypocrite. That's what he's saying. Now, Jesus isn't done with the Pharisees in chapter 23. He has a lot more to say. I'm just going to give you a couple more of his zingers. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and see to win a single comfort, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. He says, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, If anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you're bound by that oath you blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? That was exactly another thing he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm telling you, the Sermon on the Mount sets the tone for the whole gospel. One more. No, two more. Three more? Okay. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without negating the former. Neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. He then pronounces three more woes upon them for their hypocrisy about how all they care about is looking respectable in other people's eyes. And he wraps it up all with this You snakes. You brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? This is how Jesus talks to the good people. Wow, the devout, the super religious. He doesn't pull any punches. And so now we come to our parable for today. And it actually comes right before all this, but those woes he pronounces on the Pharisees just makes explicit what he was getting out through what what he was getting at through a series of parables that he just told against them, including the one we're gonna look at today. So with all of this ringing in our ears, let's get to today's parable. Listen to what Jesus says. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, "'Son, go and work today in the vineyard.' "'I will not,' he answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. And that's the chief priests and elders of the people. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John, John the Baptist, came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Now, we don't always think of Jesus as a prophet, but the people of Israel sure did. Again and again, we're told how they saw him as a prophet and how the religious leaders knew that, and they were frustrated in their wish to be rid of him. It seems they wanted to arrest Jesus way before they finally did, but they held back because the people revered him as a prophet, and not just any prophet, but the ultimate prophet that the scriptures foretold, and they were right. Now, we tend to think that because we know Jesus is the Son of God, that he's divine, that it's too small a thing to think of him as merely a prophet, but he was a prophet, and he did things a prophet did. Jesus predicted things to come. He condemned just injustice and sin and hypocrisy. He told stories to get his point across, just like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He even dramatized things to make his point, like cursing the fig tree, or when he washed his disciples' feet. Those were prophetic actions. He was a prophet. And one of the most next-level things a prophet could do a real profit like power move was to give their opponent some rope and then let them hang themselves with it okay back in the day perry mason i know this is really old but perry mason long ago he was this lawyer on tv i know like three of you remember him but he he was a lawyer <laughs> and he had the moves of a prophet He was always getting some bad guy to crack on the witness stand and confess to his crimes right there in front of everyone. I actually was at a court proceeding once, and I saw a lawyer try to do this, and he totally failed. It totally didn't work, and the judge reprimanded him. But Perry Mason, he did it every week. Or there's Captain Kirk. I know this is another old one. He had these profit moves, too. I loved it when he would talk to some all-powerful computer that was threatening to kill everyone. Kirk would just talk to it, point out how it was flawed in its thinking, and then the computer or alien robot or whatever would melt down, catch on fire, or just blow up. He did that four or five times. That never works with my computer. (laughs) But in the Old Testament, In the book of 2 Samuel, there's a story of a prophet who pulls off this greatest of feats. You may have heard about the time King David took another guy's wife, Bathsheba, the wife of one of his best officers. He had an affair with her. He got her pregnant. Then he arranged to get her husband killed in battle to cover it all up so that he could have her for himself. Well, Nathan, the prophet, shows up. He tells a story, a parable. He tells a story to the king about a rich guy who steals a poor man's lamb in order to serve it for dinner to some friends. As soon as he finishes telling his story, it says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Just think how bold Nathan was, confronting the most powerful man in the world, the king himself. A king who had just had one of his best military officers, someone he actually highly valued, killed because he was inconvenient. It's likely that the king was surrounded by advisors and attendants and palace guards. And Nathan, the prophet, walks right into the middle of this potentially hazardous situation. But it is he who traps the king. Nathan then goes on to describe in detail all the calamity that God was going to bring upon David and his house. And what does David do next? If he didn't hesitate to get rid of a military leader he highly valued, would he think twice about getting rid of this troublesome prophet? That's not what happened at all, though. Instead, we're told, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David was contrite. He was repentant. He owned up to his sin. And David was not only a king, he was a psalmist. And so we have Psalm 51 which was composed in the wake of his sin. It was inspired by Nathan confronting him. David says, "'Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight.'" Now there's more to the psalm, there's a lot more to the story, but this much is especially important for us here. After David owned up to his sin, what happened next? Nathan said to him, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Nathan the prophet trapped King David with his story of the rich man who stole the lamb, and David walked right into it. Nathan handed him a noose, and David put it right around his own neck. But David repented, and he was set free. Nathan didn't trap him in order to destroy him. David was trapped and his sin exposed so he might be set free. What about the trap that Jesus laid? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and the scribes and the teachers of the law were all looking for ways to trap him, to catch him in breaking the law of Moses, to expose Jesus as a fraud anything to get rid of him. Instead, Jesus traps them. He tells the story of two sons, one who says he'll do his father's will but doesn't, and one who says he won't but then does. Yeah, it's a story about keeping your word. It's about how actions speak louder than words, and it's fine as far as it goes, but there's more to it than that. Nathan led King David right into condemning the rich man who stole the lamb and then declared, you are the man. Jesus does the same thing. He says, you religious leaders, you so-called good people, you are the son who says, yes, father, I'll do what you wish, but then you don't. And those heathens you look down on, the cheating, corrupt tax collectors and the hookers, they're the son who says he won't do his father's will, but then he does. Listen again to how Jesus wraps up the parable. This is one of the most pointed endings to any of his parables. He says, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. You're the son who says you would, but then you didn't. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. There, the son who said no, but then changed his mind and actually did what his father wanted. And even after you saw this, you still did not repent and believe him. Actions speak louder than words. Talk is cheap. Faith that doesn't lead to action, faith that doesn't have any bearing on how you actually live isn't real faith at all. Our denomination the Evangelical Covenant Church, is almost 140 years old. And something those early covenanters, or mission friends, as they called themselves, something they used to say to each other was, how goes your walk? How goes your walk? Not, how goes your belief? Because the life of faith isn't just a checklist of beliefs, and it's not static. Sometimes it's wonderful, You're making great strides, everything is going right. The Lord is revealing things to you, challenging you, inspiring you, opening up possibilities. You're on fire, everything is awesome. And sometimes your walk, your life of faith, feels like a slog. Sometimes it feels like you're standing still. Sometimes it feels like you're going backwards. Sometimes it feels like you've fallen on your face. How goes your walk? How goes your walk? Sometimes we fall into going through the motions, doing the things that it seems like we're supposed to do, but our heart's not in it. Sometimes we don't even do that. Sometimes we're just paying lip service, like the worst of the Pharisees. Our actions don't always align with our beliefs. Sin is a snare, the struggle is real. We know what's right, and we don't always do it. This isn't a shock. This isn't a dirty little secret, this is the the plain truth. Jesus' parable was directed at the Pharisees, but it speaks to us because sometimes we're the Pharisees. Sometimes we're the ones who believe all the right things, say all the right things, but don't do all the right things. Jesus was hardest on the religious leaders, the devout, the good guys, and really, that's a lot of us. The good news, though, is that Jesus doesn't trap us to destroy us, but he will confront us. Maybe it won't be as dramatic as Nathan showing up and challenging King David, but his word and and this parable of the two sons in particular, it challenges us to look in the mirror. Are we walking the talk? What do our actions say? Growing up, My family never missed a Sunday. I went to Sunday school, youth group, church camp, all the things, and when I was in high school, a girl in one of my classes said to me, you're a Christian? I never would have guessed. Exact words. That was a Nathan moment for me. Talk is cheap and our actions do speak louder than words. Faith is something to be lived. Paul, who talked about the struggle to do what is right and how we easily fall into the snare of doing what we hate, he knew this, and he also said this, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions. For our sin is always before us. Against you and you only have we sinned, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Have mercy, Lord. Lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, we want to do what is right. We want to live according to our words and we do not always do it. Have mercy, Lord. Have mercy on us. Lead us in the way everlasting. And Jesus, we pray this in your loving, precious, holy name. Amen.